Welcome everybody to today's Intelligent Property Investor Masterclass. Well, we've certainly got a bit of movement across the cities and the regions, which is one of the big things that I want to talk about this week. Now look, the reason I do these uh, podcasts and, and uh, little videos on YouTube and on my website here is to help you. They are masterclasses. They are to help you understand what's actually going on and therefore position your decision making accordingly. And when you make better decisions, you make better money. So if you're listening to me on any of the podcast forums, either on iTunes or on uh, Spotify, I really encourage you to go across to my website, iloverealestate.tv, and make sure that you uh, get a lot of my charts because they're all there for you so you can see what I'm actually talking about as well. So let's get into this week's Intelligent Property Investor Masterclass. 8,000 plus uh, property guru says that negative gearing is stupid. Well, surprise, surprise, I've been telling you that for years. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Why the labour market remains incredibly tight despite a 3% of the workforce uh, calling in sick. We're all taking sickies apparently. Why the labour force particularly is at record highs but closed borders uh, make things look better than they actually are, and why regional markets are facing some headwinds. Now, I've been talking about this for a number of weeks as well, including the end of the work from home. Well, it's not really the end of it, but it's certainly coming back into uh, you know something a little bit uh, less dramatic than everyone has to stay home. Uh, but it's still an incredible year that you know ahead. So let's have a look at the first one we talk about, Omicron fails to dent scorching labour market. I mean, the market that uh, the unemployment rate has dropped back faster than it has for any of the previous uh, downturns in the economy that we've seen over the last 40 odd years. Take it right back to uh, the 1980 recession or the 1990 recession or the wasn't quite a recession in GFC, you know, in the 2008, 2009. Um, no, they, some of those took two years. The 1991 took two years for the labour market to recover. Uh, GFC took something like 18 months. Um, and, the, um, and back in the 80s, it was very similar. So why has this time we've gone, wow, straight back into, uh, into almost full employment, which is basically where we're at. I mean, the labour market remains tight. It's sitting for January at 42 um, I expect that maybe even to dip down into the threes, but that would only be a short-term thing if it did. And despite Omicron putting 3% of the workforce on sick leave, you know, with all of the, um, the isolation and close contact and isolation and all of those things, there have been so many uh, sick days and that has really affected productivity. Uh, for the business sector, but it hasn't affected employment because even though people have been sick or or in isolation because someone they knew was sick, uh, then uh, it hasn't affected their jobs. They're still they're still employed. So closed borders are helping keep the unemployment rate down, but the labour market is incredibly tight, and that's really what that chart shows there on the right hand side. You can see there, you know, we're we're right down. Uh, almost at 4%. And if you go back to 2012, we haven't been there in a very long term, so certainly not in the last 10, 20 odd years. Um, but you can see there where we peaked. Our, our unemployment peaked when COVID was announced, but then everybody kind of settled into it and everybody got back to work, basically. But there's some interesting facts. About 100,000 people 
usually take the whole whole week sick leave in January. Well, if you're going to take sick leave, January is not a bad time to do it. But according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, this year in 2022, there were 450,000 people uh, took sick leave in January. Now that represents a 3.4% of our, uh, you know, of the employed out there on sick leave. But when you look at the, you know, the hours, well, certainly they dropped when COVID uh, first came into play. Then we had the second lockdown. You can see there on that, that chart on the right-hand side. Then we had the third lockdown, which was, you know, the Sydney-Melbourne lockdown. And then we've had the sickies that everybody's been, been having for, uh, for January. Now, I'm not saying they're not warranted. In some cases, they are. But a lot of people I know are uh, in isolation and they're absolutely fine, but they've got to take their sick leave because of legislation and everything else. So it's a bit overblown at the moment. NAB came out, one of their economists, Taylor, Taylor Nugent, he's come out and said that the labour market remains strong uh, during the peak of Omicron variant, meaning as uh, the virus recedes, the labour market is likely to continue to tighten. And that's really what that chart is showing there. You can see there the unemployment rate uh, seasonally adjusted, just how low we are compared to where we've been in the past. Um, the employed people, we're looking at nearly uh, 13, uh, 13, mil 13 and a half million people um, in the employment barrier, in the employment market, I mean. Um, and you can see there that is actually higher than we were pre-COVID. So we've got more people employed now than we were before this ridiculous COVID thing uh, actually started and you, that's that's pretty incredible but if you look at the trend and we go back a little bit and we go back and we look at the trend line of where we probably should have been from uh, the number of people employed you can see there there's a pretty big gap between if everything had gone along without COVID where we would be on the employment stakes versus where we are now and that gap is not about um you know, people, the, the numbers of unemployed, because our unemployment rate is very low. But what we're seeing, it's a two-pronged factor here that's creating that gap. Let me explain. The first thing here, it shows you that employment to population is the highest on record. So if we go back here to 1999, this is the highest uh, percentage of employment of our population that we have had. So it's not the, our unemployment rate that is uh, the problem. This is the labour force participation. We're all employed, we're doing our thing, we're out there, you know, people who want to be employed are employed. So it's not participation rate either. So why have we got this gap between where we, we um, probably would have been had COVID not come into play? And it represents something like 480,000 people. Well, there's two things, one, there's the natural attrition of people who are getting older and retiring. Um, and, you know, that's flatlining the, uh, the, the, the labour market because they're not going to re-enter, they retired. And the biggest gap there is because we don't have the migrants coming in. So because we've got no migrants coming in and taking up a lot of those positions, we, we simply, um, you know, are short. We're short of people to, to fill the to fill the available vacancies and a lot of the, you know, the job ad uh, indicators that you see with SEEK and the others, they all show that there's, there's so many um, jobs that they're just not getting the applications for. Or the applications that they're getting are a lot less than what they would have got pre-COVID. 
So this is the long-term arrivals, and this is the real story here. We simply, as when we shut our international borders, we didn't allow migration, we didn't allow the seasonal um, workforce to come in and all of those things, it basically slashed that, um, you know, the, the people who were available to take the jobs. And that's why our labour force I is such a tight market at the moment. That's going to translate into wage price increases, even when we open up the borders, um, because it'll take some time for that to filter through the market. The last hurrah for regionals. Well, is it really? Regions are facing uh, some headwinds, but the markets are still very tight. So calls the last hurrah seems to be a little bit overblown. This was uh, an article that was in the Financial Review, uh, and it talked about how the regions have had unprecedented increase in, uh, in pricing, and it surely can't continue. Now, look, I don't believe it will continue at the same rate that it has been, but let's have a look at what some of the others are saying. So this is the, the head economist from uh, CoreLogic, and um, Eliza Owen has come out and said that it, it's not often that the regional markets of Australia and the capital city markets move in opposite directions. So it could be the case that the recent exuberance in regional market performance against a slowdown in capital city growth rates is uh, city, capital city growth rates is a temporary phenomenon. Well, have a look at this. And now this is what she's talking about here because what you can see there is that the, um, the dark blue line is the capital. So which is sitting there at something like 21.3%. But regionals have been sitting up there and you can see that, that growth rate at 26.1%. Now that is, that, that's incredible. If you have a look back through to 2012, you can see very, very rarely is the, are the regional growth rates higher than that of the capitals. And if they have been, it's normally followed a massive increase in the capitals, which is then the pebble in the pond effect, which flows out to all the regionals. This chart here shows you uh, the same kind of thing for the month on month. And you can see there the gap there between the capital cities and the regionals. Now, look, I'm not saying that the capital cities have gone down. They've still gone up. Um, you know, 1% a month is not to be laughed at, but it's back off where it was, up over 2% per month uh, when we were looking, you know, through 2021 and what that actually meant. So it's starting to, to cool off a little bit, but the regions have actually had a bit of a kick up. So, uh, you know, they, they've um, gone in the opposite direction, up closer to the two, rather than uh, back down with the, um, the capitals. I think it's a short-term thing. I don't think it's a long-term thing. Uh, it goes on to say that despite the recent exuberance, I would expect growth rates in regional uh, Australia to start slowing early this year. And I agree with her. Uh, this time, it take, the time it takes to sell a home has dropped seven days in, uh, to 30 days from a year ago. Uh, but the metric is up from the recent low of 23 days in the last three months to sell a property. So we've gone from you know, um, uh, uh, say 23 days to sell a property, we've gone to 30 days, and the chart there shows 29, so close enough. Uh, whereas in the, the capital cities, we're looking at 25 days. But go back, look at where we were back in 2012, 2011, 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. We were up 60 to 80 days on the market in a regional area. 
So we are incredibly low. There's a long way to go for these markets to kind of stabilise. And even um, Lewis Christopher from uh, SQM Research, he says, you know, more aggressive demand by employers on large scale, uh, on a large scale for staff to come back to work, working full time could potentially slow the regional housing market sharply. But at, at the comment, uh, but at the moment, I'm not seeing any signs of this happening and I'm not either. So even though there's been a bit of a call back to, back to the office, uh, stop working from home, come back to the office, it's really not affecting any of those regional markets yet. Uh, this here shows you the regional movers and the population flows um, from the capital cities to the regional areas and it's significant. Um, but on top of that, you've also got the people who would normally leave the regional areas to go to the cities aren't leaving. So that's really creating more of a hub in the regional areas. This is something that, you know, go back and listen to me 20 odd years ago, something I was calling for uh, is decentralisation and more industry in the regional areas, a bit more like America where, uh, you know, the massive cities in the, in the inner part of a part of the uh, the country as opposed to everybody clinging around the coast like we do here in Australia it would be a better thing for uh, for Australia if that were to happen I don't think this is a permanent sign that that's what we're heading towards but it's interesting when you look at regional what's regional well it's not really regional when you look at this because the Gold Coast is considered regional the Sunshine Coast is considered regional and they're the top two markets where people are moving to so that's a lifestyle change uh, Geelong comes in there, Wollongong and uh, Lake Macquarie. They are the top uh, five regional areas that people are going to. So it's very much a, a sea change um, that you're seeing there. All of those places are on the sea, you know, in the on the coast. And you're also seeing um, a bit of a movement on a lifestyle basis as well. So... Um, mm, I don't think it's it's going to fulfil my dream of decentralisation to the regional areas. It's certainly, you know, Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast don't count as far as I'm concerned. That's South East Queensland. And Rich Dad's come out during the, uh, the week and said that negative gearing is stupid. Well, surprise, surprise, I have been telling you that for 20-odd years. Negative gearing is tax-driven poverty. It came into play when uh, negative gearing came in, into legislation back in 1985. Uh, where you're able to claim the interest on your uh, money that's borrowed to go into something that produces an income, even if the income doesn't cover all of the expenses. You can claim that against your wages, which is what people have been going crazy with for years. Why on earth would you go out and buy a property on purpose just to lose money? But that's what people have been doing. Now, I want to show you a chart now, which shows just how ridiculous some of the negative gearing actually is. This is a chart of the tax bracket that people are in and how many people are actually negative gearing. Get a load of that bottom bracket. People earning less than $20,000 a year, there are 204,000 people who are negative gearing that learn, earn less than 20 grand. That is stupid. And as you can see, as you get... Um, as you get higher in the income stakes, 
the numbers actually start to come off because people get to the point where they go, oh, I actually need to be making money here as opposed to, um, you know, losing money on purpose, which is what negative gearing actually is. The 20 to 37 uh, tax bracket is, there's a hundred and nearly 80,000 people in that bracket that are negative gearing. The 37 to 80,000 bracket, there's nearly 500,000 that are negative gearing. And then it starts to taper off. The 80 to 180,000 uh, uh, bracket or tax bracket there, there's 313,000 people negative gearing. And over 180,000, there are 70,000 people who are negative gearing. Now, I just want to show you a little compare the pair here. Now, um, some of you might have seen this before, but paying tax is actually good because the thing is, if you're paying tax, well, you must be making the money. Let's go out there and make money and then we'll deal with the taxes, not go out and lose money on purpose and then we'll, you know, so you don't have to pay as much tax because for every dollar that you lose, you only save 30 cents. You're losing 70 cents in every dollar. And this little exercise here, it, you know, really shows you that. Let's take two people. We've got Kevin and we've got Lee and Julia. I beg your pardon, I thought we had Lisa. Now, um, they both earn, uh, they both go out and buy a, a property. Kevin buys a negatively geared investment property and Julia buys a positively geared investment property. One 10,000 negative, one 10,000 positive. Let's assume that they both earn $100,000. When Kevin earns his $100,000, he can deduct the 10,000 negative gearing against that. So he only pays tax on $90,000. At the end of the day, what he actually gets in his hand is $70,283. Julia, on the other hand, she also uh, earns $100,000, but she's got to pay tax on $110,000. Heaven forbid. How much does she get in hand after tax, of course? She gets $83,783. So she's $13,500 better off for concentrating on positive gearing rather than negative gearing. So heed those, those messages. And heed another message. I want you to book an appointment with one of my advisors. They're called the Real Estate Breakthrough Sessions. They are 60 minutes long. Um, they are free and there's only a few available for you this week. So make sure you take one of them up. Write it in your diary. Uh, make sure you come armed with your goals so that they can talk to you about those and what it means to achieve those goals and how we can help you do that. Now, look, we don't sell properties. That's not what this is about. This is about helping you make the right decisions in order to achieve your goals. And my advisors there are going to be able to help you with that, with that. Now, all you need to do is, if you're watching me on YouTube, you can probably click on the links down here. Otherwise, go to iloverealestate.tv forward slash questions forward slash. I'll just say that again. iloverealestate.tv forward slash questions forward slash. And you can take one of those, uh, those special advisory meetings. That's it for me this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you, you got your head around some of the facts there and what it means. Uh, there is still a lot of upward pressure on pricing. So, you know, you don't want to be mucking around uh, dilly-dallying in this market. It's time to, uh, to take action. I'll catch you again next week, guys. See you then. Bye now.